Welcome to Redeemer Church. Good morning, good morning. We are going to embark on the next four weeks on this question. What is a disciple of Christ? Several years ago, the elders and deacons were deciding what Christ, uh, Redeemer, Christ Covenant, <laughs> what Redeemer was all about. And what we're all about are disciples making disciples. And pondering this, I actually wondered myself, what is a disciple? Come to find out, I had no idea. Uh, come to find out, I think most people don't really know. So that's what we're going to be exploring, that question. So there is no, I'm not going to be going through a particular book or a ver- particular set of verses. There is one particular verse I'll come back to again and again over the next four weeks. But for today, I just want you to ponder this. Matthew 10.25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And then this jewel from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Sabbath rest. It's time to come before you, to be renewed in you. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds, our Open our ears and our hearts. Let the truth go down deep. Refresh us and renew us. And make us more like your son, who has accomplished everything for us, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, discipleship is part of the Christian lexicon. And is a word, I believe, that we all hear a lot. But I find that most of us don't really understand what it means. What is a disciple? How does it differ from an apostle? Is every Christian a disciple? When we disciple others, are we making them our disciple or Jesus' disciple? That one trumps me every time. It's It's a good question. When we disciple others, are we making them our disciple or Jesus's? Why then do the apostles command us to imitate them as well as imitating Jesus? How does discipleship fit into our overall theology? Now, the Baker Encyclopedia, we're going to start with the boring stuff, defines a disciple as someone who follows another person or another way of life, and who submits himself to the discipline or teaching of that leader or way. Now, this is okay for a simplified definition. It's how most of the study aids actually define it. Almost all of them say exactly the same thing. But to me, it sounds more like a religious studies definition, applicable to Muslims and Buddhists as much as Christians. How is that definition Christian, is what I wonder. I mean, Muslims, they follow a particular person in a particular discipline, a particular way of life. What, what I've read here is a theological term defined for religion, religious studies, not a Christian doctrine defined biblically as it could be. Now, Christian disciples follow. They learn and devote themselves to a particular leader and his way of life. But th- this definition leaves out the result, the result, the ultimate point, what God is doing in discipleship. It focuses too much on what man is doing. All the books I read about this, all the definitions, this was the striking thing. Discipleship seems to be a very man-centered idea these days, not God-centered. What is a God-centered definition of discipleship? Biblically, at the heart of its definition, I believe firmly that disciple means a person in the process of becoming like Jesus. A person in the midst of transformation, in the throes of alteration. Transforming man into image bearers of the triune God is the whole point of redemptive history. Genesis to Revelation. If you look in all of the Bible, this is the point. God wants image bearers. 
At whatever cost to you, at whatever cost to him, that's his plan. This has been his plan since eternity past. Jesus calls us into a relationship with him, discipleship, to make us into little Christs, which is what the word Christian means. The word Christian means little Christs, and that's what he wants. He wants little mini-me's, dressed up in the suit, following, <laughs> following his way of life, doing as he does. Jesus commands us to be holy as he is holy. Think about it. Selfless servants imitating his selfless service. Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us. And what you begin to see is that assimilation and imitation is the ethos of New Testament ethics. This is what it's all about. Assimilation and imitation. This is what he wants us to do. Assimilate these things into ourselves and do them. We don't learn from Jesus like school children or university students. There isn't a test at the end of the Christian life. Right? We don't learn all the doctrines of grace, all the grace that God gives us, and then sit down to a test at the end. That would totally defeat the purpose of grace. At the end, there's a being. The product of discipleship is a certain kind of person, okay? a being, a purified, justified, sanctified, glorified person. That is what God is, is doing in discipleship. Now, glorified people become glorified by following, learning, imitating, obeying, and worshiping Jesus. Okay? That's what we do. But I don't want to focus on that today. Today, I want to focus on what he is doing in discipleship. One commentator states it well when he says, Jesus does not only teach a defined curriculum, but intends to reshape his disciples' thinking and heart attitude toward themselves and God, thus affecting every aspect of their lives, every aspect of their lives. Jesus pursues nothing less than the complete reshaping of the disciples in mind and heart. We are not meant to be devoted merely to what Jesus taught, but devoted to his way of life, being led by Jesus to learn the thought, the motion, the affection of Jesus in order to imitate it in the actual world, to go out and do likewise. This is the definition of what a disciple is. This is not a second-tier doctrine. Okay? I'm not reaching deep into the bag and pulling something out and saying this is the gospel. What I'm talking about is the Christian life. I'm talking about what the gospel does. It actually does something to people, to a group of people, to the world. This is not a subject for the mature. Now, let me make an aside here. This is where I'm going to fit this in. What is the difference between apostles and disciples? If you look at the text of the scriptures, actually, they don't really use the word disciple much after Acts. But then the apostles are there. And so it seems almost like disciples become apostles and then all the rest of us are, you could call us the bride of Christ, you could call us children, you could call us this, you could call us that. But that's actually um, confusing a little bit. Okay? All the apostles had been disciples, but all disciples do not become apostles. Okay? This is, there's a distinction here. Disciples don't graduate to apostleship. Okay, it was limited to a very specific criterion. And this is what I'm going to say. After Judas, Judas had fallen away, we read this in Acts 1, 21 through 22, when Peter and the other followers are trying to replace Judas. Peter says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Apostles were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, who had followed him from the beginning of his earthly ministry to the end. They were to testify as eyewitnesses. That was, the, that was the key point. They saw it. They saw everything that he did. And it was backed up by their miraculous works. 
They were verifying the validity of Jesus' claims about himself as the Son of God. Apostleship, therefore, was a limited office pertaining to an eyewitness account and appointment by God himself. Okay? I'm sorry to say it, guys. There are no apostles now. Uh, I, I think I once heard an evangelical pastor explain that he was a small a apostle because he plants churches, but I believe he totally missed the boat on what this means. Okay? Apostles were eyewitnesses who did miracles to establish the validity of Jesus' teaching. Discipleship is a much broader term referring to every believer. Our status as believers and our mission as believers. Think about the Great Commission. Go therefore and make what? Disciples. This is the commandment to the church for all of time. So all of you, by the preaching of the word, by evangelism, by your family, however you came in, are all disciples. And our mission is to go into the world and make disciples. As Hans Baer states, Jesus lives and teaches in order to call a people into discipleship and thus return them to a life under the eternal, life-giving, and direct rule of God. Jesus lives. He does. He's reigning from the right hand of God to this day. And Jesus teaches us through the Holy Spirit, as it says in John 4.26. Jesus is not just someone we worship. He is not merely a Lord to be obeyed. These are all things that we get into these grooves and we stay there. It's not just about coming and worshiping him. It's not just about obeying him. Christianity is not limited to a Sunday activity or devotional reading or an act of prayer. Okay, you're not a disciple when you're praying and then you go eat and it's something totally different. You're not a disciple when you're here and then something else when you're at work. Discipleship is what you're called to. It's the relationship. It's one way of, re- of describing the relationship that you have with the living God. Discipleship is about the whole person. In the coming weeks, we are going to look at what it means to be a disciple. But today we're going to define the term. That's all I'm going to talk about now for the next, hopefully, 30 minutes is defining this term. To follow, obey, and worship Jesus are the next three sermons. And all to follow, obey, and worship are ways of being remade into the image of Jesus. Okay, there's going to be one theme to this. You're being remade. And I'm going to talk about what you do But behind it all, and the most important thing that we need to learn over this next month, is what he is doing through the things that we do. Because that is the thing that really lasts. That is the stuff that, right, what he does versus what we do, what he does is the thing that takes effect and lasts forever. And he does it through what we do. Discipleship is the process by which God is remaking us into his image and likeness. Now, I say that God is trying to make us into images of himself. Where would I get this idea? We're going to go back, deep, 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 into the Old Testament to Genesis. And that's what we're going to look at right now, the lie of Satan. Now, I know we all know a great deal about the lie of Satan. Did God really say? This is what he says to Eve. Eve messes up what God really said, and then she eats the apple. She gives it to Adam. Bada bing, bada boom, here we all are in need of salvation. But what Satan lied about, what he lied about is as important to the history of redemption as the lie itself. And understanding why and what Satan lied about is essential to understanding the heart of the Christian life. Okay? It's not just that he lied. It's what he lied about. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Okay, Satan is essentially telling her, he's not letting you eat it because he doesn't want you to be like him. Now, that is an extraordinarily important fact because Satan is lying about God's ultimate purposes. Think about it. He doesn't come in and, and attack God's character. He doesn't say God isn't really powerful. He doesn't say God is, isn't really good. He doesn't go after his omniscience, his omnipresence, his power, his authority. He doesn't go after that. He goes after his purpose. He goes after God's plan. Did God really say that? Well, he doesn't really want you to eat it because he doesn't want you to be like him. But this is ridiculous on the surface of it. And as far down into it as you go, this is patently, completely, thoroughly ridiculous. Because, what does it say? Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God wanted a rational, emotional, spiritual, physical being who would imitate, who would rule like God and love like God and commune like God. The Father made child-making so that humans could feel the eternal satisfaction and pleasure the Father has in the Son. Think about all of, all of creation. This is what I'm talking about now. He made image-bearers who would live and exist just like he does. God made marriage so that we would experience the kind of relationship with the person that Christ experiences with his bride, the church. God made unity and diversity so that in exercising our diversity, we might know what true unity is. Our gifts and our uniqueness overlay one another as a true temple where the Lord dwells, the Lord who is diverse and unified. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made a world that we would experience in such a way that it would make us more like him. Okay? He created us to, to be image bearers, and he made a world that as we participated in it, as we experienced it, we would experience it like he experiences it. He wanted little miniatures of himself. This is, what, this is the whole point of man from the very beginning. Now, this idea is carried over to the New Testament. Right? There's a big problem with this plan to make us just like him. We believe the lie that he didn't want us to. We believed that we wouldn't really die. And so we ate the fruit and we fell. And the image inside of us was tarnished beyond all recognition. Right? This is something we're all very, I think, used to hearing about. And in the New Testament, God makes it very clear about why he sent Jesus. Okay? He hasn't changed his plan. He didn't come up with a new plan after the fall. What he needed to do was get the train back on the tracks so that he could proceed to his final destination that he always intended for man. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Philippians 3.21, God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 Corinthians 15.49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We need to understand God's intent for each one of us. Okay? He has a plan for each one of you. God does really have a glorious plan. I know that we sort of laugh at that. Right? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, what they are saying is the wonderful plan is what we should laugh at. The fact that he has a wonderful plan is something we should actually encourage one another with all the time. And the plan is to make you little Jesus Christs. So that when people see you, they see him. When they hear you, they hear him. 
right? When they smell you, they smell him. When they interact with you, it's as if they're interacting with him. He wants imitators, images, copies, persons that go around unified and diverse that are just like him. That's the whole point of each and every one of your lives. This is where it's all going. God is reshaping us by our love for Jesus into miniatures of himself. He's using Jesus now to get us all back to where we were supposed to be from the very beginning. It was his plan all along. And this is the verse here. This is the one we're going to come back to again and again. Think about what this means now in light of what I've even said this far. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay? God has us believers back on track. He has us going in the right direction. To be like Jesus is to look like him, not merely in our features, but in our actions, our attitude, our affections, and our affluence. God made man in his image. We fell and we tarnished that image beyond all recognition. And so God came in the image and likeness of men to complete the image and likeness of God in each of us. He came as a man. God came as a man to make men like himself. That's the point. God came as a man to make men like himself. What Herbert Lockyer says of Peter and the other disciples could be said about every disciple, every one of us, each of you. This is what he said. Jesus called them to follow him, not because of what they were in themselves when he met them for the first time. Well, look at this magnificent person, Peter. No. But because of what, under his direction and by his power, they would become. That's why he chose them. That's why he chose you. Like Michelangelo, Jesus saw the finished product in the rough, uncut marble. This is what artists do. I don't understand it myself, but they look at a big slab of marble and they see an angel. They see the David. They see these magnificent things that is just a piece of marble. Well, when God looks out on all of you, okay, let's not boast, let's not start to get a little crazy here that it's because we're magnificent in some way. He sees what he's going to do he sees what he's going to do and he sets out to do it he sets out to do it now god wants us to be just like him the greatest example of this okay i i I found this to be the thing that brings it together for me the greatest example of this plan to reimagine human beings in the likeness of jesus is found in the fruit of the spirit and here's here's why this is such a magnificent example of this what are the fruit of the spirit they're god's attributes They're the things that make him, him. And he's working them into all of us by the power of himself. He's taking his attributes and he's giving them to us. Okay, We're not earning them. We're not doing it ourselves. He is reshaping all of our characters into characters that look and act just like his. God infuses our characters, our actions, and our outlooks with his attributes. Now, some of you might be asking, what are attributes? It's a weird word. Really, it's just characteristics. It's the things that make a person that person. Okay, if, I, if you took away my sense of humor, I would cease to be who I am. It's an attribute that I have. Uh, if you took away my wife's beauty, well, she's so beautiful that it would overcome it. It's fine. <laughs> okay, now, some of God's attributes are God's. They're, some of them are what they call incommunicable. It's another $50 word to say that they're his alone, right? 
He's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful. He's a spirit who does not have a body like us. There are things that make him God that do not communicate over to creation because then they would cease to be, that would create all kinds of weirdness. Now, there are other attributes that he has that he does give to men. Love, peace, patience, kindness, right? These are things he made it possible for men to do. Now, this is what I'm talking about here. He's making us like himself. John 15:5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? Worldly people who don't know him can love, but it's as different from his love as sand and water. Now, he then saves us, and he makes us capable of love. And it's the difference between maybe water and dirt. Right? It's a little... <laughs> It's a little bit better than sand. I hate sand. But dirt, you can at least do something with, right? It's still different, but it's not like the world, right? He begins to work in us, to produce in us things that are just like what he does, his characteristics. So we love because our status in Christ unites us to him as the branches of his tree. We produce the fruit of love because we are grafted into his fruit-bearing tree. This is the whole point. Branches are distinct from a trunk. Nobody would confuse a branch for a trunk. Branches can produce fruit, though, without the trunk holding them up to the sun, going deep down into the ground, drawing water. You need the trunk. But the point is he grafts us as branches into the, into the tree and then bears fruit through us. This is why he's always talking about this. And then Paul goes on and later and talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We are the branches on God's tree. That's where the fruit is produced. Okay, but a branch never produces fruit all by itself. It needs the trunk. So once we're attached to the trunk, bam, now we can bear some fruit. Now we're going to produce, right? We're rooted and grounded in love. And what, as Joel was saying this morning, we work out what he works in, right? The fruit we produce is is the result of the root that we're now attached to. We're rooted and grounded in love, okay? Grafted into the tree of Christ, bearing fruit. And it comes from him. And that fruit is delicious, right? Think about fruit. He doesn't say cauliflower. He doesn't say vegetables. This is what I love about it. He describes what he produces in us as fruit because fruit is delicious. I've never met a person who doesn't like fruit. And so, right, apples, pears, think about it. Well, maybe Steve Brown doesn't like fruit, but he's the only one. Fruit is delicious. Fruit isn't for yourself. A tree does not produce fruit so we can eat it. A tree produces fruit so I can eat it. Right? When you stop and think about this, this is quite something. And uh, Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. So this plan doesn't work without him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, according to Galatians 5.22, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, I'm not going to take the time. But every single one of these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are his attributes. That's how the Bible describes him. And what he's done now is grafted us into himself so he can give us now the ability to be and do these things. Right? So if if someone comes along and I am patient and they enjoy that fruit, I can take no credit for it. Right? One of my favorite lines is, I'm the humblest guy I know. Right? But that's a ridiculous statement for many reasons. One of them being is it makes it seem like it comes from me. Right? If If someone enjoys patience in your life, thank the good Lord. We have none of these attributes in ourselves. None of them. He has to produce them in us. 
Now imagine for a second, let's switch this around just to think about it. If God required us to be in two places at once, to be present here and in New York, what would he have to do, right? We couldn't do that. We're finite. We're limited. I can't be in New York and here at the same time. That's ridiculous. Now, if he intervened somehow in the makeup of my person and made it possible for me to acquire that attribute, then I could be in two places at once. Okay, it's impossible, however, to do it all by myself. Now, that makes tons of sense to all of us. But then as soon as we start talking about peace and patience and kindness, we think, oh, no, no, I have some of that. That's not as impossible as being in two places at once. But apart from him, you can do nothing. I mean, you know you, right? It's as impossible for you guys to be loving, gracious, kind, self-controlled as it is for you to be in two places at once. It really is. And he intercedes to make it possible for us to do those things. So this is what he wants. He wants us to act just like he does. He wants us to treat people just like he does. And this is the point from the very beginning. Okay? All of this describes the fruitful life. Okay? All of these things. This is true virtue. And what he's working into us is true virtue. Now, this is what is tricky about this particular one. How many of you guys have ever prayed for patience? Right? I pray for patience with fear and trembling. Please, God, <laughs> I need to be... I have a hard time even saying it. Patient. Maybe he didn't hear me. And this is how all... Right? You can't generate any of these within yourself. And so, so much of the Christian life, this is what it, right? Why am I constantly losing my cool right now? Why am I just running out of patience and screaming at everyone, screaming at my kid and screaming at my wife and screaming at the neighbor, screaming at that person in that car who can't even hear me? That's because God is like standing there with this bag of patience and kindness, and he's like, I got some. I got more right here. You, you want, oh, no, you're going to keep going. Okay, well, right? This is the interaction here. If you keep coming up hard and fast against one of these and, and you've, you've, the bank account is empty on self-control, where are you supposed to go, right? I go to work to get money. Because my bank account is empty, I go to work, they fill it up for me, thank you. My bank account of self-control is empty, where do I go? To the only person who could possibly give it to me. Because that's what he wants. He wants you to have as much self-control. It's not a trick, right? You don't come into the Christian life and then we have all this difficulty and hardness, and we wonder, what did he, why did he call us out here to the desert? What he's done is he's called you into relationship to, make, to give you these things. He doesn't want to deprive you of anything. The mechanism by which he makes you like himself gives you all the self-control you can have, all the patience you can handle, all the kindness you can handle, is the relationship that he has with you. And, and so, you know... Don't come to me and talk to me about how difficult life is because you're constantly running out of patience. These, right? This is me at work right now. I have no patience for impatient people. <laughs> I work with people who are the most impatient people in the world and it takes me like 10 seconds to get as equally impatient with them. It's so funny. It's ridiculous, but I digress. Right? And so what, what happens? The, uh, the account's empty. I go to God. What does he give me? More patience. And it hurts to get it, Right? It doesn't hurt nearly as bad to fill up my bank account from work, but he does it. This is what he's trying to do. This is what he wants to do. So most of the angst and discomfort in our lives is the result of our resistance to what God is trying to do in and through us. He has a program. He has a plan. He lays it out. 
You are going to be a patient person. You are going to be a self-controlled person. You are going to be a kind and gentle, joyous, loving person. And all of his plan, everything he's doing in your life is to make you that person. Okay? It's not a mystery. And so what happens is we, we resist that and we run into all kinds of trouble. Is he good? Is he powerful? Why am I so unhappy? Get out of his way. Okay? Get out of his way and follow him to where he's going in your own life. Okay. Now, we're going to get into something here that I found when I first read about it to be somewhat strange. Okay? The fruit of the Spirit is what God is doing now in this world to you. It's the clear and evident evidence that he does want you to be like him. But there's more to it than this. Right? What I call the hope of heaven. The fruit of the Spirit is what God is doing now. But we also need to turn our thoughts toward the final product. Okay? Let's Let's just stop and think about this. Where does discipleship ultimately lead? What is it all about in the end? What is the result? This is where things get really interesting. Which attributes of God's does he bestow upon us? Which doesn't he? And what is the final product? Right? Does he ever give us all-knowing, the ability to be all-knowing? No. We'll never be all-knowing. We'll never be all-seeing, all-powerful. But we will live forever with bodies exactly like Jesus Christ's body. We will be sinless. We will do the will of the Father perfectly. It's hard to imagine now. But we will be so much like Jesus, it'll be hard to tell the difference in some ways. He says, the will of my Father is food and drink. At one point, you will say the same thing. It'll be hard to tell the difference between the two because he will make you just like himself. It'll be hard to kill you after you're resurrected. Why? Because you'll have a body like his. You'll live forever. You'll be immortals. You all now are the seeds of immortality. You all within yourself, right? Eternity in your hearts. That God comes and fills, and he fills the whole life. And, and what sprouts up in the end result, the fruit on the tree for all of you is immortality. Now, this doctrine is very old. This is a very old doctrine. Westerners don't talk about it much anymore. But it, it stems from 2 Peter 1.4 and everything that I've said already. This is what 2 Peter 1.4 says. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He's given us his promise. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay? You're going to share his essence. Essence means the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something. It's what makes, again, him, him. We will partake in God's essence. We're not just simply going to be mirrors that reflect it. You're going to partake in it. He's going to make you so much like himself that in some ways, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. This doctrine is called the deification of man. Now, it's a small d, right, because we're very careful when we write to communicate this kind of thing. You're not going to become the God, but you're going to become God's. You're going to become God's. Now think about this for a moment. His promise to us. This is simply put what discipleship is all about. This is what this first sermon is all about. Psalm 82.6, God says, I said you are God's, sons of the Most High, all of you. You are all being deified. Now you're not going to replace God, right? You're still creatures. There's still distinctions. 
but you're going to be so different from what you are now that if you saw your deified self now, you would want to worship it. Now, that is hard to believe because just this week, I think I fought with my wife twice, right? I went to work and I made mistakes. I was late. I, I'm sure at some point I lied about something, right? I'm going to be a... That it, this whole thing, this whole idea, the whole point of where he's taking us in the end begs our credulity. It staggers the imagination. But what are you going to be? Have you ever stopped to think about it? What is the product at the end? A sinless, perfect, immortal being who lives with God in heaven where he lives, acting and doing and being just like he is. This is what Christ has promised to us, okay? The children of alligators are alligators. The children of birds are birds. The children of gods are what? Gods. Thank you. <laughs> the children of God are gods. This is why he's called the God of gods. Right? We, if you think for a moment, he's the Lord of lords because there really are other lords. He's the king of kings because there really are other kings. Now, making man king and father and priest doesn't in any way detract from who he is as father and king and priest. But when we get to this one, I know what you guys are all thinking. There's a moment, there's a pause in your mind that's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Dean's gone for one week. Mike totally loses his <laughs> Mike totally loses his mind. But stop and think for a moment. You're not going to be the God. But what are you going to be? What do you call a person that lives forever? What do you call a person who's sinless? What do you call a person who can't be killed? What do you call a person who judges angels? What do you call that? What do you call that? He's the God of gods. Not because he's the God of Balaam. Not because he's the God of Moloch. Right? Or Allah. Those are no gods. He's very clear. Those are non-entities. He's the God of gods. Because his children are like him. Now, the triune God made men in his likeness, bearing his image, to be beings like himself. Okay? And we screwed it up. We totally messed it up. And so man, or God became a man to make men gods. We're fine with the first half of that. We're fine. Oh, God wants to come down to where we are. Got it. Sweet. Here he comes. To make us like him. To take us back with him. To lift us from the mire to the right hand of the Father. To be what? Some sort of kind of being in heaven that I've never really thought about. That's usually how we think about this. The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church says this. The concept of deification involves the belief that through, through grace, man can overcome the effects of the fall and acquire divine attributes, notably incorruptibility and immortality. But its central tenet is that God, through the incarnation of his Son, has called men to share the divine life in the Son. As St. Athanasius put it, the word became flesh, that we, partaking of his spirit, might be deified. Sorel of Alexandria, for we have all become partakers of him and have him in ourselves through the spirit. For this reason, we have become partakers of the divine nature and are called sons. Okay? I don't carry a rock around and call it a son. Because it's ridiculous that it would be a son of mine. Now, my sons, I walk around and I say, here is my son. Oh, it looks like him. It's shaped like him. 
well, fitter than I am, but you get my point. Right? The God walks around and he says, behold, my children. And, and, and if you were an observer who didn't know anything, you'd be like, oh, yeah, look at that. In heaven, you'd be like, yeah, look, look. I can hardly tell the difference. Look at how they look. They look just like the first son there. It's unbelievable. If you are uncomfortable with this, if you feel that we are somehow stealing something from God, you need to understand, okay? The problem isn't what I'm saying. The problem isn't that we're stealing anything. In me and in you, this is the problem. We don't understand the true, startling, shattering grace that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And the effect, the effect that it's going to have on us forever. That's where it breaks down. Okay, this isn't some mumbo-jumbo I got from mythology class studying the Greeks. Right? The perishable is put into the ground, and what comes up is imperishable. You who are not sons are made sons. You, by looking with unveiled face upon Christ, become like Christ, just like he became like you in order to make this whole thing happen. He was really a man. And in the end result, you will all really be gods, serving him in heaven forever. Now, this is what discipleship is about. This is what it's about. It's not about some plan that he has for you being students, following around, writing everything down very carefully. It's not about tests. It's not this bookish Western description that I've read over and over and over again. Okay, now, imagine for a moment everything I've said here. This is how we're going to finish. This is, this is really where the rubber meets the road. Imagine for a moment everything I've said here is true. Imagine it. Now, would you homeschool the same? Would you work the same? Would you eat and drink the same? Would you pray the same? Would you read the Bible the same? You know you. You know what you go through every week. You know what you believe and don't believe. You know what you are really like, and so does he. And what he is done is come into your world to make a relationship with you to where he can make you just like him. Imagine if that were really true. Imagine it were really true. Okay, in his brilliant sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said this, there's no boasting in what God saw in us when he by grace chose us. We boast in what he is making us. We boast in what he is making us. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship it. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You have never once talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. Okay, this presidential election that's coming up, the situation with race and politics is nothing compared to what we're talking about here because it's all swallowed up. That's all temporal. That is all mortal. These are mortal, these things that I'm talking about. Their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. But it is immortals, immortals whom we joke with, work with, Mary, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. 
We are mortals when we are born. And when we are born again, we're born into immortality. To become something so utterly different than what we were when we started, it staggers the imagination. What is discipleship all about? Being a student? Participating in a once-a-week service? Doesn't this whole thing expose us a great deal? What are we fooling about with every day? What are we fixated on? What is God doing in our lives? What is his goal? Not our goal, his goal. Why did he unite us to the beloved son? Ladies and gentlemen, sons and daughters of the living God, I want you to meditate on this this week. What is he doing? What is the ultimate goal? Don't get lost in the here and now. Don't get lost in the up and down. Don't get lost in your frustration. Think. When you come out of the ground in the end to go into heaven forever, what will you be? That's what he's working on right now. And believing it, believing it is how it happens. Believing the one who promises to do it is how he in fact does it. Believing, hoping, yearning for him makes you something completely different than what you were when you were born. Even what you are sitting there as today. And believing Jesus' promises to do it is how he does it. So as we go from today and we talk about discipleship and all of its little nuances, as you go tomorrow and you go back to your normal life apart from this glorious morning that we get to have, remember this. His plan from eternity past was to make miniatures of himself. And we lost our first opportunity at that. But he wants it so bad, he loves you so much, that he sent his son as a man to make us into gods, to live with him forever, to live like him forever. That's the reality in which you live. And believing it is how he does it. Let's pray. Father, this was a stumbling pass at something too marvelous for us, something angels long to look into, something that is so huge, so big, so complicated, so hard to believe, that you took all of redemptive history to show us how much you love us, to bring us into this relationship where we will be made just like you. Father, in our hearts and in our minds, this is a thing too, too marvelous, too difficult to believe. And as we go from here today, as we go into our homes, sit down with our spouses, talk to our friends, as we pick up our Bibles and as we kneel to pray, as we meet with the unbeliever and, and our co-workers at work, let us remember this, that you loved us so much that you invaded human history and united us to yourself to make us as like you, so like you, that one wouldn't be able to tell the difference. We pray, Father, that let that be true of us today and tomorrow and all this week. We thank you for your service to us and your ministry to us. We thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, that you give us the, the faith to believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.